Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Dana Spiotta. Dana Spiotta is the author of Innocence and Others, which won the St. Francis College Literary Prize and was shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, Stone Arabia, which was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, Eat the Document, which was a Natural Book Award finalist, and Lightning Field. She was a Guggenheim Fellow, a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellow, and she won the 2008-9 Rome Prize for the American Academy in Rome. In 2017, the American Academy of Arts and Letters awarded her the John Updike Prize in Literature. She currently teaches in the Syracuse University MFA program and the city also provides the setting for her latest novel Wayward um, which is a fierce funny and very moving exploration of one woman's midlife reckoning which has just been published by Virago and I have to say if listeners haven't read it yet please remedy that at once. Um, it's very early for me to be making this call I know but I'm absolutely convinced this is going to be one of the best books that I read all year um, and I'm not the only person who thinks this as well the novel was published in America last summer and it was a New York Times notable book of the year and selected as a best book of the year by the New York Times the Washington Post the Los Angeles Times Vogue Publishers Weekly and Kirkus um, so welcome to our shelves Dana it's such a pleasure to have you here today Thank you, Lucy. I'm really glad to be here. No, this is wonderful. I'm really excited to talk a little bit about Wayward before we get into um, our main questions. And I want to start by kind of re recalling back, I think it was last summer or after Wayward came out in the States, I was watching a, um, a video in which you were being interviewed by George Saunders about the book, which was brilliant, uh, brilliant interview if anyone wants to go and look it, at, look it up. But I was really struck because at the beginning of this, he introduced you as a great American writer, which I 100% agree with. But I also kept thinking, I thought, wow, I don't hear that term used for women writers a lot, even in this day and age, which is, seems so kind of striking that it's an accolade that's so rarely afforded to women. And then I kept thinking, in particular, there's something about Wayward, which kind of made the whole thing even more radical that he was acknowledging your status, because it's a book that talks about sides of women's lives or kind of aspects of women's lives that we're actually not used to reading about that much. Um, you've got a, uh, a sort of a perimenopausal woman at the heart of it, Sam, who's in her early 50s, and she's going through this, I described it as a sort of midlife reckoning, but there's sort of lots of things going on. It's sort of hormonal, it's emotional, it's kind of, she's making choices about what she wants to do with her life um, and what she wants to do, what she wants to sort of get out of life in a very different way. Um, and she sort of has this emerging identity. It's it very much like a sort of a different I suppose it's, I kept thinking about it. For me, it's chimed with so many books we read about adolescence, but we don't often read about women in midlife having this this type of sort of identity crisis or kind of moment of reckoning. Um, and I'd love to know where you got the sort of germ of the idea for Wayward in the first place. And what is it about Sam in particular that really spoke to you? And why you were writing this book, were you aware that you were writing something that is quite radical and new and an area that hasn't been explored as much as it should be in literature? Um, well, yeah, I, I really like what you're saying about that, because I do, I, I did have a sense, I'll answer the last part first, I guess, that I was trying to do something different. Um, because I had this idea, I was going through these perimenopausal symptoms myself. And I remember being at a writing conference and talking to some older women writers and they were like, oh yeah, you know, you won't be able to concentrate. You won't be able to sleep. It can go on for years. I mean, you know, and not, not everyone gets these symptoms, but mm -hmm. you know, they really hit me hard. And, and, um, and I was thinking, why don't we talk about this more and why don't we write about it more? And I realized that there is, so much um, shame uh, still, even among very enlightened women and men and people about the aging of the body, particularly the female body. Mm -hmm. And so it was very important to me to kind of uh, be explicit about the body and the aging of the body and not in the, and avoiding the cliches of like losing your sexual attractiveness or your beauty, this kind of you know, the tragedy of the, of the, of the middle-aged woman who's no longer appealing as, yeah. um, I didn't want it to be about that. I, I didn't want my character 
to be concerned about. And in fact, she rather deliberately, she hardly, I don't think she ever looks into a, a mirror mm. in the whole book. She doesn't think about how she looks really. Other people will comment, oh, you cut your hair or whatever. But And it, it felt more profound to me that these changes of body are reminders of your mortality, reminders of time passing and your relationship to it, whether you're willing to engage it directly or just try to hide it, is has a lot to do with how much you're engaging the terms of life, I think. So I wanted to think about that midlife change as a kind of an opportunity to sort of do some foundational questioning about about what life is for and, and, and what the second half of your life is for. And that was really what I was trying to do and very much located on the plane of the body. Mm, that's so fascinating because I think one of the other things that just really jumped out at me while I kept while I was reading Wayward was in fact actually now you talk about the body the minute you mentioned that I keep thinking of um like Sam she's sort of doing strength training and there's a sense of a kind of but there's a sense of her sort of honing or like doing something with her but being aware of her body in a different way she's aware of strength she's not you're right she doesn't talk about beauty but she's aware of she is aware of her body and the changes that are going on in it and this sort of this word is such a kind of um I feel it's banded about it but there is some, an empowerment there there is something going on about her changing relationship with her body which I think is really empowering some of the sex scenes as well in the book I don't want to give yeah. too much away to the, anyone who hasn't read it yet but these were very visceral and and very I don't know I found them the, I found it all very moving I think this the the truthfulness of it and the sort of authenticity with which you're writing about this but she also doesn't have I think as well, we're very used to particular stories about women's midlife um, crises, let's put it that way. Like you say, right. we're used to women talking about how they're, you know, they're, 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 the beauty they've been associated with or the bodies they're used to having are no longer sexually alluring in the same way. Yeah. Or we're used to stories in which men leave women, right? And then they right. have to kind of get over that. Whereas again, in, in Wayward, I love the fact that it's it's Sam herself who makes the change and she leaves her husband and he's the one left reeling and wondering like, what do I do after this? You know, and there are good and bad things about that because she leaves her daughter as well or she thinks her daughter will move with her, doesn't she? But then her daughter decides to stay living with her father, which is quite interesting. You've got a whole other angle there. Um, and actually, can we talk briefly then about that? Because I thought that her daughter, Ali, was, again, a fascinating character. You go into we do get to be inside Ali's head for some of the book, which I think was really, for me, really kind of pushed the novel into kind of different areas. And I really enjoyed that, um, particularly, I think, because I found this really fascinating parallel between these two women two different generations both going through these kind of periods of incredible change in their lives right yeah they have so much that connects them mm -hmm. and ultimately but they can't really be together um i mean her daughter needs to separate from her and she needs to let her daughter separate and i think by the end of the book you start to see even though the daughter kind of is very harsh harshly critiques the mother yeah, and, and yeah. fairly, I think, in some cases, points out, as, as the young are very good at doing, points out her hypocrisy and, 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 mm. um, uh, and her failings. But then in the end, I think her kind of um, her values, her aesthetics, everything are sort of uh, much more in line with her mother than she will, she cares to admit. And there's also the grandmother um, yeah. who figures into that too. And in a weird way, the the uh, the youngest daughter and the grandmother kind of connect, um, and this is sort of um, ultimately a kind of love for this troubled protagonist is that her daughter and her mother have this profound connection, and 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 the three of them, their connection, I think, is very. Um, all of them are going through a change, right? Mm. The mother's the grandmother's dying. The uh, Sam is in her midlife identity crisis, and and uh, Allie is growing up. And yeah, and they're all sort of uh, kind of pulling away from each other at the same time as they're really kind of more intimate than ever, I think, by the end. Mm. And you write so beautifully, I think, about those moments between them. They talk about sort of the sleepovers they've had together or the kind of sleeping in, each, in the same bed as each other. And this very beautiful sense of, I think, Sam obviously realizes what she's losing in Ali growing up, but she's also aware of what she's going to lose when her mother dies. And so there's a real sense of, or sort of seam of loss that runs through the book, but is, I don't know, very, very kind of evocatively examined, I thought. And I think you write about mothers and daughters and, and being a daughter and being a mother in such a kind of clever, nuanced way. Um, I, I don't, I couldn't think of another book that I'd read 
not just recently, but that really kind of expounded on these relationships so elegantly. And I'm fascinated to know whether you had any particular, you know, books that you, I mean, is this a relationship that you like reading about in books? Did you have any particular books in mind when you came to this that you you wanted to kind of be inspired by or, or kind of draw reference um, to? There were a lot of inspiration, uh, literary inspirations for the book, but it wasn't so much about the um, maternal aspect. That part was really drawn from my own life, my mm-hmm. own experience of being a mother and being a daughter. But I would say that the the way that the book um, handles, uh, aside from the, I, I would just say that that um, this idea of what to do in midlife and having it be bigger than just uh, simply um, the loss of youth. What I, when I think about The Summer Before the Dark, the Doris Lessing book, she has her middle-aged woman, although in that book it's a little bit younger, it's more like 40 was middle-aged <laughs> in, in, the, you know, in those days. But uh, she, she has a summer where she cheats on her husband and but what I like and I and that seems like, you know, that's been done like the affair is a way of kind of like revitalizing yourself. Right. And mm-hmm. I didn't want that to be the case either. So a lot of it was like what I don't want to do, what's already been done. Right. I don't want it to be a, she finds some young guy, which is what happens in The Summer Before the Dark. But in The Summer Before the Dark is a much weirder book than that. And what I did really uh, find as a model is the way that she connected the political world, the situation, the historical moment to this character's crisis. And I yeah. think that's another part of the book where. What is happening in the world is sort of mirroring and reflecting the crisis that that she experiences in her life in the mm-hmm. sense of that um, that you're in a historical moment where things are in crisis, things are in flux. And the only way to kind of move forward is to, to sort of and to see is to kind of look at the past. And so there's a big element in the book that is about her um, reckoning with where she's at and what what she's done with her life so far which is analogous to on the national level, um, looking at what the, where the country's at after Trump's election um, and wh- how did we get there and what does that mean about, you know, I don't think you can escape the past, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a big part of the book that has this kind of, that even goes back into the 19th century and yeah. this kind of suffragette from the 19th century and, um, and thinking about uh, how these kind of complicated forces um, are in play. And so I really admired that in the Doris Lessing. And I also would say, um, you know, the the sort of sublime novel of middle age um, contemplation is is Mrs. Dalloway, right? And I also love the way that Virginia Woolf in that book was really talking about, you know, the war and talking about the pandemic Mm. a few years later. And it was sort of infused also with that feeling of what it's uh, of this kind of midlife woman, right? That you're both talking about a place in a specific time and historical moment, uh, it, but you're kind of locating it in a, in a person. And I thought that was really that way that I, I like books that are very intimate in that way, but are also w- talking about the whole cultural and the culture, mm. cultural moment, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I'm interested to find out then what was the, do you remember a particular was there a particular moment when you realized that the sort of personal and the political were going to combine in this? Because I imagine, you know, as anyone kind of living the sort of reality of Trump's election in real time and, and seeing how it plays out all around you, was there a mo- when did you start working on this book and thinking, this is what I want to go into it? And these these two things can work together to this very kind of productive whole. Well, I was, I. I always try in all my books, I try to write about the specific moment um, that, you know, I feel that we're shaped by um, everything from architecture and geography to socioeconomic class, gender, and, you know, all these forces shape who our identity, right? Mm-hmm. Where we don't exist in a vacuum. And all my books are very located in very specific places and times for that reason. Um, but when I was working on it, I didn't realize that the Trump election I, that and even though Trump is like hardly mentioned in the book, really, mm. the election happens before the book starts. But it's one of the things her husband thinks is is a confounder. And I think it's a, it is a confounder. Um, and she is very politically um, engaged. She goes from sort of being like this kind of liberal in the suburbs who sort of votes right and doesn't do much to wanting to sort of be engaged in the world in, in a more real way. 
um, and trying and failing in a lot of ways to do that. Yeah. And, uh, and that was because the election happened when I was writing it. And I really felt after it's, you know, all these things have been in issues for a long period of time. It's not like inequity mm. and misogyny and racism just started with Trump, obviously, no, no. but, but it became, it's such a flashpoint. It's so hard to ignore. It's almost like your menopausal symptoms. You can't ignore this, right. right? Yeah, yeah. So it gives I it thought, a sort of focus and a real, a real depth of yeah. I can see that. Yeah, you can't. It, it's not subtle, you know. Yeah. And so, um, and so, it seemed like it had to be part of the book. Uh, and also, it's very true. It, it was really true. <laughs> you know, it really, um, uh, it makes her feel. And I think this is something that's true both in her personal life, but I think she, she's very. Uh, she indicts herself. She sees herself as complicit. And this comes in with with the Me Too aspects of the book as well, which is that, you know, she gets in early in the book. She's sort of accused by these younger women of being um, complicit with the state of the world. And she thinks, yeah, you're right. You know, and that was something um, that I felt profoundly in 2017, which is when the book takes place, which is that, you know. The world is really still very messed up. Yeah. And um, and Generation X, which is, you know, my generation, if you believe in those names, um, you know, we had a lot of we had a big assist from second wave feminism uh, on making the world a better place. And then we kind of, you know, then it just just, just not enough progress had been made. And here are our daughters saying, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. We need to change this. And, uh, and that really spoke to me. So I had this, Sam, I just felt that she would be, um, her own, her own, what she's had, she had a lot of privilege. She's had a lot given to her and what has she done with it? And maybe Mm -hmm. that's, you know, I I don't think that, that all of us have that question, right? Um, I think it's a good, um, question to ask yourself from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long answer. (laughs) That's a long but very good answer. Well, I could keep talking about this book all day, but I fear we're going to have to move on to some other questions. But um, that was fascinating kind of insight into it. But actually kind of taking from that, so we've already talked a little bit about, you know, um, the books that you were reading or maybe thinking about while you were while you're writing Wayward. But tell me about some books that you're reading at the moment, two books that are currently on your bedside table, please, Dana. Yeah, so I teach. So um, both these books I'm teaching or have taught recently. So that's why I wanted to talk about them. One is the um, the Edward P. Jones Lost in the City collection mm. of short stories, which is um, amazing because it does also center, I think, to use the contemporary way that people put it, um, middle-aged women and older women. Um, and, uh, and, I, and it's quite moving and beautiful and so full of empathy and compassion. And again, he, you know, he's talking about poverty and he's talking about a very specific place, Washington, D.C. Um, and, and a very particular cult, you know, black women in, and black people in Washington, D.C. But he's, you know, he, he, um, it's just so touching to sort of see these very, these women who make, who are very human and complex and full of mystery uh, and that that he's sort of so interested in, and it's all ages. It starts young and then moves towards the and the age, but it's often these um, very compelling middle aged and older women in that story. Mm. So this is the collection Lost in the City, which I think was originally published in the nineties, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm interested because this is something that you've is this a book that you've kind of come back to and taught on multiple occasions? <laughs> no, you know, um, I, I I just. Um, I haven't read it before and I had a student recommended it to me. I'd read the other collection of short stories that he has and I hadn't read this one. And, um, and I was, I'm teaching a beginning workshop and there's a story called the first day, which is about the first day of school. It's, and I was, I said, okay, a student of mine said, I I like to teach this. And I read it and I started crying. (laughs) I said, wow, I got to read this whole book. It's so great. So it's one of those books that I, I should have read, but I haven't. You know, and he was inspired by Dubliners, which is one of my favorite books of short stories. So it's like the Washington, D.C. version of Dubliners, right? Oh, that's so interesting. I'm because I'm not sure he's particularly well known over here because I think I read an article in they're running. I think the New York Times is running a sort of 
an ongoing series called The Americans, where they're talking. Right, A.O. Right. Scott is writing about particular, very kind of you know, great American writers of yeah. the 20th century. I think maybe it goes even further back. But I think I first came across um, Jones by reading that, but I hadn't read any of his stories. And so when you said you were going to talk about it today, made me think I must go and get some in this case. But I, yeah. I don't think he's quite so well known over here. Yeah, so no, it's, great a, it's a shame. And, and he's, um, it's, a, it's beautiful writing because it's so... Um, it has that, it does feel like Dubliners. There is a kind of like um, mm. epiphany feeling at the end of the stories. And it is very ordinary people. Um, you know, uh, none of them are rich. Um, uh, and do the yeah. stories sort of build to a bigger sense of community? Yes, you get the absolutely. Sense of you get the sense okay. of, and it's very um, grounded in place. And I think it's that sense right. that, you know, you have these, um, you have these structure, structural inequities, right? Um but within them are these very complicated human beings, right? Mm. So um, that is a very interesting tension. And it's it's not simple work, even though the writing is very, very understated and very, very beautiful on the, the line level. Yeah. Mm. But, the, mm. but also the empathy of these, just the, curi- the it's just very moving to me. This sounds, this will sound kind of pathetic, but it's very moving to me when, um, when male writers are curious about older women, isn't that weird? I mean, I shouldn't, mm. you know, I just think like, oh, it's interesting that they want to take that perspective and think about that, you know. Well, it's interesting because I guess it's not done so often, right? right that's right. The, that's the thing that makes it, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like me saying, you know, it's interesting that, you know, Saunders describes you as a great American writer, not because it's not brilliant, but it's because we don't, we're not used to hearing these things. And yeah. so, yes, to take a kind of, particularly to take a sort of older, um, rather kind of unremarkable woman as one's character that's just not something that a lot of female writers do let alone a male writer right so right you know yeah and I am very interested in um in that uh I am a little bit of I do think people and this is obviously just you know so self-serving but I do think people in midlife are really interesting (laughs) 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 um you know because you you, and, and I think older people are really interesting too um yeah but I guess I probably think all people are interesting. But, uh, uh, you know, you as you as a writer, I think it's an interesting position to be in because you can I can remember very well what it's like to be 17. Mm. So I still feel very comfortable writing from the perspective of a 17 year old. Um, but now I have this, you, you know, I think that 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 great thing happens in midlife where you can kind of see in multiple directions at once. You can still see what it's like to be young but you really are getting a good sense of what's to come. Mm. <laughs> and so you have this kind of amazing uh, ability to see in, in, you know, a life all at once in a way that I didn't feel that I had as younger. I mean, you get a lot from observing older people for sure, but yeah. it's just interesting to sort of be in this midpoint as a, a perspective as a writer. It's sort of fascinating, you know, when you tease it out like that, you kind of wonder why anyone limits themselves to just writing about young characters or young people. Because they're because, you know, just out of on a very basic level, you know, their experiences are limited to such a degree compared to someone of middle age or older, right? It's it's odd. I think it's because um I think this is definitely true in American culture, and I'm pretty sure it must be true for British culture as well, that um that there, that that you are, it's still, you know, it's still sort of shameful to admit that you're getting older, you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so to write about it is to admit. I actually, when I published this book, I thought, oh, now everyone's going to know I've had, I'm in menopause. You know, jeez, <laughs> uh, I'll never, I'll be that'll be with me forever. You know. Yeah. Um, but and and there is something you're supposed, to, and that's the thing about menopause is also it's always um perimenopause or menopause it's it's kind of treated it used to be treated as kind of like an ailment right mm. and an illness and and now it kind of gets treated more as like a joke like women are so crazy when they're yeah. you know hormonal and menopausal and um and it is funny sure and it is kind of an ailment at times it's not like it's fun but mm. um but it's also not it's also more complicated than all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I feel like there's been a lot of kind of taboo breaking around women talking about their periods and right. things like that. And wait, so this is like the next thing that 
we have to kind of push through is actually talking about menopause in this kind of in an open way. And there's a book that I, I that an, a book about um, menopause that's a nonfiction book also that I wanted to mention, which is um, uh, Renee um, Steinke's uh, Flash Count Diary. And that mm. is, um, it's kind of like Maggie Nelson's style, uh, you know, that, that really drawing from other literary sources and uh, kind of um, aphoristic, but it's all about uh, Flash Count Diaries, her diary of her um, hot flashes. And, but it's philosophical. Oh, okay. It's really quite, quite explicit about, you know, about the meaning of, of uh, menopause in a way that feels very literary and smart. But the other book that I wanted to talk about was Rivka Galkin's Everybody Knows Your Mother is a Witch, mm. which I teach in this class that I have on um, uh, history and research and in fiction and imagination. And, uh, and I love that book. I love it because it's very funny. And it's also, you know, it has a real strong political edge, feminist edge. And I like this idea of taking, you know, what that kind of absence in the archives or gap in the archives, a story from history. Uh, mm. and, and, you know, Kepler is a real person and his mother was a real person. And um, and sort of what's the, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what's the story that so it's the based story on? is that, that Kepler is an astronomer and, you know, it's 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 um, his mother is just a widowed older woman and she gets accused of, of witchcraft. Um, and so it's really that story about that. And then this, this sort of bystander, um, a, a friend of hers and, you know, how everyone, it, it kind of gets into this whole idea of like how the community um, handles when somebody is an, made to be an outsider and who mm. is, uh, who is, a by, you know, being a bystander, being complicit with that. Um, and also just how power, women power, women who have power, like they use herbs or they do these or they live by themselves are suspect and, um, and, and, and I think threatening. Um, mm. And so, uh, it, so it took this kind of real incident, but really spun it out into, and she uses a, a lot of kind of, I would say a contemporary sensibility. So it doesn't feel sort of sometimes historical fiction can feel very historical and a kind of corny way. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this feels very contemporary and it's very compressed. Mm, fascinating that's on my um one of the books on my to read list at she's some point. wonderful I've she's read, amazing yeah I've read some of her like the non-fiction but I haven't read um th I, this is fiction isn't yeah. it yeah mm -hmm. yeah no I, I haven't read this one yet but the non-fiction I've very much enjoyed so it's on my list how do you choose I'm I'm fascinated to know when it comes to the books that you're teaching how often do you sort of change change it up like add new things into your syllabus like are you always changing and reacting to books that you're reading because I mean, the everyone knows your mother is a witch is a relatively recent yeah. publication, whereas the, you know, the Lost in the City is a bit older. But are you always kind of moving things in and out? Yeah, I mean, I put on that same syllabus. I had um, Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. I had the Patricia mm -hmm. Lockwood. Um, it's because my graduate students really, you know, they they want to read contemporary fiction. So I, you know, and and I want to read it. So when I teach yeah. it, we kind of get into it. Um, but then I mix it up with older. Um, books too. I, you know, I, I teach Ulysses in a year, in a semester long class, uh, wow. which is, I've done that for, you know, I've done that maybe uh, four or five times. And that's another book where um, I'm very touched by, although I think some people find it, um, you know, there, there's all these things have double sides to them and they're imperfect, but I, I am very kind of, I was very touched that, that um, Joyce is curious about, uh, you know, his, about Molly's experience and wanted to write, and he writes about menstruation from her perspective yeah. and stuff. And I was like, like, that's interesting that he's, that he wants to go there and he's curious about it. And of course, you know, um, there's but a he lot goes of everywhere else in that book, right? So you might as well. Yeah. Um, but there, you know, there's critiques to be made about, you know, how yeah. misogynist certain, interp you know, interpretations of it might be things that he does or doesn't want to focus on. But um, but it's interesting to talk about with writing students. So uh, we do um, that. And um, I, I really love teaching um, partially because it's just a, a reading books with really smart people. It's like a great yeah. book club, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real pleasure for you as well, as much as, I mean, it's obviously a pleasure for them to be taught by you, but it must be really fascinating to watch these people kind of talk about the books and, you know, particularly if you are dealing with really new stuff. One of the problems sometimes I think with um, with anyone teaching is you can get really stuck in the rut of teaching the same things over and over again. And, uh, you know, you lose your edge slightly with that. So it's great if you're putting new books always into the syllabus and, and responding to the current times. Yeah. Um, next up, I'd like to ask you about, I think you're going to tell me about a couple of films that have made you think, right? Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So, um, yeah, we, the, I watch a lot of movies. <laughs> That's nothing to be ashamed of. That's a good thing. That's um, a good thing. But yeah, I recently saw The Lost Daughter, and I've not read The Lost Daughter. Um, oh, so okay. I've just seen the film. And I guess, um, and I saw it right after I saw Landscapers. So I guess it's like Olivia Coleman is yeah. um, having like an Olivia Coleman moment. And I think, again, you know, I do really like that she is often playing these middle aged women. So. Yeah, yeah. And she is so, uh, as a, uh, an actor, just the, the complexity and the, the beauty and also the, the lack of vanity at times with mm. the way that she allows her self to be seen and express it. It's just her vulnerability. Um, I just find her so fascinating to watch. So I think I really uh, liked watching those films because of her in particular. Um, and I lost, I like the lost daughter because it was, um, so strange and I didn't mm. I really like books and films where I I sort of have to think about it for a while and sort of think about all the possible ways I'm supposed to interpret it um mm. and that was definitely true with the other one I wanted to mention which was The Power of the Dog the Jane Camp Campion movie um that I thought was really um powerful and it um yeah at the end of it I was just I did not see the end of it coming, which is exciting, but um, it was just so moody and interesting and complex. Like mm. who, who you were, what you were supposed to think of each of the characters, how bad they were, how good they were. Uh, I love the tension of that and, and uh, thought that was quite amazing. And the other movie that reminded me of that one was uh, First Cow, the Kelly um, Richtart movie. Did you ever oh, see that? Oh, yes, of course. I haven't watched that one yet. Um... But I, yeah, a lot of people said it was very good. It's definitely something. Is it? Is it? Is it excellent? It is excellent, and that is another one okay. where, like the power of the dog, it has that kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a western feel, and you get yeah. that like that kind of, um, it's a kind of western where everything is really um, hyper realistic and feels really yes. dirty and broken and uh, isolated. Um, yeah. and, but also both those films use music in a really powerful, discomforting way. Um, okay. Yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah I like, I, I watched the power of the dog and I did, like, I found bits of me wanting almost a little bit more sometimes yeah. from it. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I love Campion's work and I think there was so much to admire there. I thought Kirsten Dunst's performances was, br performance was brilliant. Yeah. I did really like Benedict Cumberbatch. I think, you know, a lot of the shots, the way it was shot was just beautiful. But sometimes I just kept thinking I just wanted a little bit more just to grasp onto at various points. I'm not sure. Do you mean more in terms of a like an emotional engagement with the characters or do you want more like exposition as to what was going on? A little bit of both. But I think, I mean, I like, I, I, I like the fact that there were, I like the sort of general murkiness of it and that you had to work out right. slightly what was happening and who, and I like the gaps in people's backstories that you could fill in little bits. I don't want it to be kind of spout out, you know, kind of served me all on a plate, but at the same time, I just felt it could have pushed it slightly further. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to, but I feel again, like I would happily sit and watch it again and get more from it. it you know, it's not, I don't know. It's not, I'm still. I think I'm still trying to work out what I think about it, which in a way yeah. is a sign of an interesting film, right? Yeah, and I think that's the way I feel too. Is that um, a sign for me that is that I need to see it again? Yeah, you know, and I feel that way about novels too. That when the when I finish a really provocative, interesting book, I feel like oh, and now I need to read the whole thing again. Now that I see where where it's ended up, 
Um, yes, because then you feel, I feel like maybe I've missed things on the first viewing or on the first reading and I want to go back and see where they're signposted. But then the kind of atmosphere... On which point then, does, has has watching The Lost Daughter made you want to read the novel or not read the novel? Well, that is one where I did want more. I was sort of thinking, I, ha- I have... I have ambivalent feelings about it because I thought Mm. you know on the one hand are we supposed to think and I should read it because it's probably more clear in the book but on the one hand are we supposed to think that she's um she's I mean she does this very cruel thing right to the younger mother and um and I wasn't entirely clear how her sanity was supposed to be perceived like how much reality she understood was going on you know, mm. she seemed very untethered in a really compelling way, but I wasn't sure what it meant that that because she made poor decisions as a mother that she regrets. Has that is that why she's been driven insane or are we not supposed to think of her as insane? So I was I was confused about that movie. Yeah, I can I can see that I have read the book and watched the film and I think the film although I liked it, I think the film or the way that Olivia Coleman played it, she played her character as slightly more unhinged than I had the impression from reading the book. Okay, let's put okay. it that way. So, but maybe also because in the book, you know, you're in the character's mind the whole time. So you also feel like you have a, you know, even with the most unhinged characters, if you're able to inhabit their consciousness, yeah. you always feel like you've got a handle on them that you can't quite grasp in a film in the same way, right? I so agree. it's a, I mean, that in itself, I think, was fascinating that, you know, for Maggie Gyllenhaal, the director, to decide that that was her first film as well to choose this book by you know one of the most famous writers in the world and this entirely internal quite mad story to do. yeah yeah no I, like that takes the sort of you know balls I think it's fascinating but I do think um, novels are really good at consciousness and mm. um at you know kind of giving us a sense it, when a novel is depicting a consciousness it, it for somehow maybe because we just grew up reading novels I don't know but it does feel like what it is to be in a mind yeah yeah and movies just cannot do that they they can try to do it with an actor's face they can try to do it with a voiceover but it's just it always feels artificial or inferior to I mean there's a lot of things that movies are better at than books are Mm -hmm. but I do think novels get consciousness in a way that that is sort of you can't do it in any other medium I don't think yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think that is what's lost in certain of these films, that even what you're talking about with um, Coleman's character, it didn't necessarily even cross my mind in the same way when reading the book, because you're inhabiting that consciousness and you sort of understand where certain decisions are made, even if the character, or you are, or you, you either do or you don't understand them, but within the realm that's been created for you, whereas you just can't. On the screen, you've got her wonderful kind of face, which has myriad expressions on it that are kind of you know excruciating and brilliant at at heart but you're never quite sure what's going on beneath the surface right 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 yeah um our shells be back in just a moment hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Dana Spiotta about how novels do consciousness best in a way that movies can't ever (laughs) quite compare with. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Um, Next up, Dana, can you tell me a bit about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Oh, yeah. So there's this book um, by a writer, Emily Ogden, called On Not Knowing. And Hmm. it's a book of essays. And uh, she's a a scholar... um, literary scholar and this is really uh, the book is coming out I think soon it isn't out yet Mm. Um, and uh, it's just uh, what I like about it is that she kind of gets what we were sort of talking about in she talks about motherhood um, and she talks about her own uh, experience of um, trying you know she's she's very literary. So she's talking about other books constantly. She's extremely well-read, but she's also talking about her twin sons. 
and um, and her everyday life. And it's very much based on the everyday. But she goes to these very complex, beautiful philosophical places. Um, and she talks about the the kind of um, her position in the world of being both very privileged and uh, kind of um, seeing the world from a distance as she raises her sons and sort of uh, her own complicity but her, and her own responsibility. All those questions that I was interested in in my book, I think she does from a younger woman's perspective, a young mm. mother's perspective. Um, and it's just uh, beautiful, beautiful essays. And I, and I do really mm. like that you can kind of um, look in multiple directions, both, uh, uh, you know, on the, on the local plane, really talk about a very hyper-local, int- intimate uh, plane, but really also be reaching out beyond. So it's not just about the self. Um, and I think for me, I'm always interested in that kind of, and why I write and why I read is it, this kind of paradox. It's partially about uh, discovery of the self, but it's also about um, losing the self in something bigger, um, that kind of um, sense of connection that you get mm. get beyond the self. And so I like that tension between those two places. Um, so I think in, you know, in my book too, the, the character is sort of, uh, very kind of narcissistic in her, in her self-critique as she begins. Mm. But I think by the end of the book, she's in a, um, she's kind of, uh, understands the world's going to go on without her. And she's sort of, that's okay. That's almost liberating. Mm. And I like that. I like, I'm not there in a personally, but I like to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Something to aim for, right? Something to aim for. Um, I think I'm so intrigued because motherhood, over the last few years, motherhood seems to be this wonderful canvas for so many writers that it's inspired, like, I don't know, it, it, it seems to have, motherhood itself seems to have released certain things in writers that they're able to then kind of put on the page, but it's a way into thinking about so many other things about their sort of own identity, yeah, about their place in the world, about, you know, feminism, all this kind of stuff. And it seems to be the thing that people are engaging with right now in their work. Did you see Wayward? I mean, were you at all aware when you're writing Wayward of it being part of that bigger sort of thrust in literary culture right now? Because it it it, it struck me after I think I'd read it that I didn't think of it I think so. I was talking to someone else about it and they said, oh, you know, it's just one that it's another really brilliant book about motherhood. And I thought, oh, I hadn't put it in that. I hadn't put it in that particular kind of canon because I think I've been thinking about it more as a book about a middle aged woman who just happens to be a mother. But I don't know. What, what's your th- sort of thoughts on this? Did you see it as part of that? I do. I mean, I definitely, you know, you're always trying to write something that's singular and mm. <laughs> and part of nothing, yes. right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I don't. I, I think it can be both, you know, I think that, uh, that it's, that, it, that, that, um, I want it, you know, I, I made a joke to some, another writer that I was writing, um, uh, a, a novel, a midlife crisis novel that was also a social novel or political novel. Um, yeah. but it's also a novel. It is very much a novel about motherhood. I think the thing that, mm. that, that, uh, the kind of a, the emotional through line of the book is really, uh, between the mother and the daughter and the granddaughter. Right? Yeah. And so I think that, um, and that's connection of that family. But I, I, but I've had a lot of women who are not mothers who have said to me that um, they responded just as daughters to reading some of it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yes. Well, I think maybe that's it because I'm not a mother. And I think for me, it's not, obviously there's a lot about mothers in it, but I, every time I thought about it, I thought of it in terms of mothers and daughters or a kind of generational thing, but maybe because I personally can't quite, I mean, I can, I can appreciate what you're saying about mothers and it's right. beautifully done, but obviously it doesn't resonate with anything particularly in my experience, but I can resonate with being a daughter because I am one. So, right. you know, right all of us are daughters. So yeah, (laughs) whether we like it or not. And exactly. uh, So I, so I, I was thinking about maybe what it means to be a daughter, um, even more than what it means to be a mother. Uh, because I do think that the biggest, the thing that really, if there's an inciting incident, the thing that really precipitates her crisis in the book is the fact that her, we find out, and I don't think I'm giving away Mm. too much, but her mother's dying and she just is, I'm not prepared for what's to come. 
you know, I haven't done the, I haven't done enough. To, I'm not in the, you know, yeah. I haven't figured out how I'm supposed to be in the world. You know, that the finiteness of the world is really hitting her. Um, and she doesn't feel that she's ready for it. And that sense that, you know, the first half of your life was really full of newness and joy. And the second half is going to be full of loss. Mm. Um, that, that, you know, and, and that's just true for all of us. Um, and whether you face it or not. Right. So she's thinking like, I've got to find another way to be so that, that, that isn't, um, a terrible thing, but that is something I accept or I understand. And, and of course, when you're thinking about your mother's mortality, um, you're really thinking about your own mortality. I mean, that's part of the reason why I think that that experience, if you're lucky and you experience it in midlife and not as a young person, that experience is really um, so powerful because it's also about you. Um, it's not mm. just about this person that you love who you're losing, you know. I think also, and again, this could be a very personal response to it, but I think because uh, because of the point in which you're talking, in point in which we meet these characters, obviously Ali, the daughter, is sort of, she's about to kind of, you know, move out from home. She's old enough to kind of be making her own start in life, as it were. And then obviously you've got Sam in the middle and it's almost as if she's transitioning, or I read it this way slightly, that she's almost transitioning from being, identified mostly as a mother or Ali's mother and looking after Ali to now she has to think about her own mother again in a different way and she's she's sort of reassessing her relationship as a daughter as well again like because I suppose we all go through I don't know I wonder because having never experienced it but maybe women I wonder if there's a sense of you are you move away from your own mother and then you perhaps become a mother of your own and you're very aware of that relationship and then you have to reassess your relationship with your own mother when you start thinking about mortality and the way that, that that she won't be around forever, I don't. I, there are sort of shifting identities there. I think that I found quite alluring and intriguing. Great, yeah, and I think um, you you have a lot more. There's a lot of humility involved with middle age and aging, mm. right? And I think one of the things that really is humbling is um, becoming a mother because you start to realize just uh, what your mother went through, uh, right. what your mother feels for you or didn't, you know, or, or just, you just have more compassion, I think, for, or more empathy for um, mistakes they made, which when you're yeah. 17, it's so yeah. easy to point out, you know, <laughs> this is clearly a mistake. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, everything when you're 17, and you have no experience. And so you're not in a humble position, really. <laughs> No, exactly. And you capture that so well with Ali, where she's so straight that she knows exactly what she thinks is wrong and right and who's doing what. So brilliantly, brilliantly done. Um, and last up then today, Dana, can you uh, oh. bring the programme to an end by telling me about uh, a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire, please? Well, um, OK, so I think the person that I that I really admire is Joy Williams, the writer, Joy Williams. Um, I admire her as a writer and I admire her as a person. Um, she's, I just, she does this amazing, I mean, her work is like nobody else's work. You could pick her sentence and know it was one of hers. Uh, she just has the strangest um, affect as a writer. And she also uh, can create, she creates these, beautiful sentences that kind of in the second half always sort of end up in a place you don't expect, but it doesn't feel mannered or contrived. It just feels like a, an expression of her own singularity on, in the mm -hmm. form of a sentence. And then on top of that, she, um, she has been writing for a long time. I think she's in her seventies now. And she just, she's, she's very, um, she's very uh, in style right now after being sort of someone who deserved a lot more recognition than she got mm. for her whole career. Um, and now she's kind of getting it in her seventies, which is kind of amazing, but she just does her thing. And she, she's a very intense um, environmentalist and, um, and she writes non, I don't know. She wrote this great collection of essays, um, ill nature. Uh, and she's just takes no prisoners in her, uh, adamant uh, about her point of view, but it's not, it ever, never feels didactic or cliched or self-righteous because she is just always kind of getting, going to this um, place that only she inhabits and speaking from that. And I just think that, yeah, she's amazing. 
And uh, I, I will just, there's a little quote of her where I'll just say that she, she's talk, she says that the writer writes in the hope that he may serve not himself and not others, but that great cold elemental grace that knows us. So she has this kind of amazing spiritual quality without being mm. religious. Um, and I just, yeah, she's just an, uh, a, a huge, I'm a huge uh, admirer of hers. Is she somebody that you've been reading for a long time? Did you come to her quite early on in your life? And okay. Yeah. I mean, I was reading uh, Joy Williams and I, 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 you know, her, the quick and the dead really helped inspire my second book, uh, eat the document, you know, I wanted to write about how you could certain kinds of resistance um, that she writes about resistors. Uh, and then the most recent book, Harrow, she writes about a, a resistance as or she, she just does it without it being, she just does it in this very funny, particular way that, that I can't imitate, uh, but mm. I try to find my own version of, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it. Um, and it makes me want to pick up Harrow, which I have a copy around here somewhere and haven't got around to it yet. It looks kind of bonkers, but in it a is. way, right? It's like <laughs> okay. nothing else you will read this year, I guarantee you. Okay. But it's quite okay. funny. It's quite funny in places. I mean, she's really got the darkest most absurd sense of humor okay it's dystopia it's a oh, dystopian yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. novel isn't it about sort of cli- like climate uh-huh. catastrophe and the end was okay yeah I can't I can't think why I didn't think of picking up earlier <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. so anyway, but no she's interesting enough for me to want to um yeah I'm expecting something quite mad in a good way though yeah and th- there's another book of hers 99 stories of god which is like you can't put it in any category it's just these little mini vignettes sort of essay stories with the title at the end which are almost like jokes almost like a punchline it's just it's like nothing you've ever is it a book of poetry is it a book of you don't know what it is (laughs) and then of course she just writes these brilliant short stories too yeah 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 I think that's I think I knew her mostly as a short story writer she hasn't written a novel in a long time Harrow is very new isn't it yeah I think it's been 20 years or something yeah long time I think that's it I think I was aware of her as a short story writer and was kind of surprised when this crossed my desk and I thought I'm sure she doesn't write novels but then great more the merrier um brilliant well thank you so much Dana that was fascinating um thank you for coming on the show thank you Lizzie Thank you everyone for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Dana Fiotta, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Mm-hmm.